ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is The Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Have you gone to your doctor and been told, much to your surprise, that you're obese? And I wonder, good morning, Kirsten Deprose. I wonder whether we actually have an incorrect image of what obesity really is and what it looks like. I think that's a good point. Good morning, Rochelle. It's not a nice word, obesity, isn't it? Like, I was thinking about it and... The image we have of it, it's not a word you'd ever describe someone as and it's certainly not a word that you'd like to be described as yourself. But 27% of the population in Australia is obese. And a, a recent report by the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare has actually projected that if current trends continue, then by 2030, 31% of people in Australia will be obese. And we know a lot about what that means to all of us as Victorians, what pressure and cost that puts on our economy, on our hospital system. I know not that long ago I was speaking to Dr Sandro DeMaio about the fact that some of our children will have shorter life expectancies, the shorter than, than we have as a result of obesity. So it feels like we're just starting to try as a society, as a community, understand what obesity is, the fact that it is now nearly 30% of us, that is a huge number. So how did it get, get there? You know, is it hard now to live a healthy lifestyle? Is it about access? Is it about cost? Is it about education? You know, is it as simple as eating healthy and exercise? And if this prediction is known, then what do we do about it? Yeah, I think we're already at a stage where we probably have to say as a society, look, it, this is this is not a good thing, you know, that it's, you know, we, we all come in different shapes and sizes, you know, having conversations about bodies can be really tricky sometimes because the last thing we ever want to do is is body shame. But if we look at it purely from a health perspective and about, you know, the impact it, it can have on a person's health, having, you know, 27% and potentially more in the future of our population of people, um, you know, classified as a beast. And like I said, it's not a nice word, but, and this is, I think, what we really want to drill down into, like, what does it mean to be a beast and in terms of the health outcomes? It's it's a different category than being, you know, overweight. It's It's got all of these other implications. And, you know, it's, it's budget day today. We're hearing about all these sorts of things. And, and, you know, in the lead up to budget day, we hear about everyone going, oh, this is our wish list. And, I don't know. Obesity is probably something that you don't hear talked about a lot. Mm. It's not one of the top categories. But the Food for Health Alliance is calling on the federal government to implement a national obesity strategy. So, And that comes, you know, looking at it from all different angles, from sugar taxes to junk food advertising to making walking and exercise easy to having healthy food just easily available to us. So what does obesity look like? Do you understand it? Is there a sliding scale? And what does it cost the state and the taxpayer if more of us are obese? Have you been shocked to learn that you're obese? Is there a misconception around obesity? And is it as simple as eating well and finding time to exercise to try and change this prediction? On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. This is the Conversation Hour. Rochelle Hunt with you and Melbourne Kirsten Dipros as always joining you from ABC Warnable. We're talking about obesity today and the fact that nearly 30 percent of us will have been told or have been given a diagnosis that we are obese. And I reckon, Kirsten, that that would come as a shock to a lot of people that they would think, hang on a second, I don't see myself as obese. Obesity means this, but it doesn't mean me. Yeah, I, I think you're right. Uh, and then what does that mean um, if if you're being told that um, and, and what sort of action do you need to take? Um, and, 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 and just how does this, and, and will society help you to do it? Because I think we're all so busy. You know, the, the weight can easily creep on when we're rushing around as parents or whatever it is. 
you know, I live re- regionally yep. and constantly, you know, we I, I might not have anywhere to stop in between an hour drive and the one place that I do st- stop at, you know, serves potato cakes and um, dim sims, you know. And let's not even look at the transparency when it comes to food labelling, whether or not you, you have easy access to being able to exercise as well. Joining you in the studio today is Jane Martin. She's the Executive Manager for the Food for Health Alliance and Malcolm Clark, who is the Senior Prevention Policy Manager for Cancer Research in the UK. A warm welcome to the two of you. Jane, let's start with defining what is obesity. If 30% of us are classified obese, what does obesity really look like? Yeah, so I'm not a fantastic mathematician, but it's your weight in kilojoule, uh, sorry, it's your weight in kilograms divided by your square height in meters. So if you want to find this out, there's a calculator. You can find a calculator on the, on the internet. But I think the thing is, these categories are really important to see trends in populations over time. For an individual, there can be variations. You can have a BMI that's, um, you know, puts you in the um, overweight or obese range, but it really depends on the individual and where you're carrying your weight. So you might be below 25 BMI, which is in a healthy weight range, but you may be carrying um, a lot of um, toxic fat around your organs and you may be metabolically um, unhealthy. You may have a, a BMI which says you are obese, but you might be a rugby player. And so it really depends on the individual. Um, and people um, who are new to an ultra-processed diet, such as our Aboriginal communities and some um, linguistically diverse communities, are more at risk because their, their bodies just are not used to these highly processed mm. foods which fill our diets now. Jane, I'm glad you sort of unpacked those calculators and scales and BMIs and things because, as you said, everybody's different. And, yeah, if you've got a lot of muscle, it might not be entirely accurate. Um, But in terms of kind of, you know, looking at this as a societal problem, when did it really start to be an issue? When did a higher proportion of our population start to become, you know, well overweight and, and obese? It really kind of started with this, they call it the nutrition transition in the 60s and 70s, where highly processed foods with a long shelf life, um, which are made in factories, um, started to sort of take over our lives. So when I grew up, mums made biscuits and cakes. Now they come out of packets. Um, And that kind of, that food supply has become very cheap, very available. When I grew up, there was one fast food restaurant quite a long way away from where I lived. Um, and we had a small piece of a small chocolate bar once a week. But things have changed, and children are having three, up to three sort of processed packaged foods in their lunchbox every day. Um, they're drinking a lot of sugary drinks and fruit juices and things like that. So our diets have really shifted a lot. And then we are, you know, not um, undertaking enough physical activity or just you know, we're being sedentary more on screens. And there's sort of two things about that. You're seeing the marketing and promotion of unhealthy food, for example, and the normalisation of those kinds of unhealthy diets, as well as not moving. So there's this But that's where it gets really tricky, right? Because the transparency behind labelling and what is healthy and not healthy, and a lot of the times it feels like we're being tricked into something that is easy and healthy and here we're doing you a favour, we're all time poor and just pop this in your lunchbox and everybody's happy. So it's not as simple as it is having, well, we just don't, we can't be bothered making the cookies anymore, we're going to buy them. Those cookies may be labelled in a way that makes you think you are doing the right thing. Jane Martin is with you, Executive Manager for the Food Health Alliance. Malcolm Clark, welcome not only to the conversation now, but welcome to Australia. You're the Senior Prevention Policy Manager of cancer research in the UK. Do you have similar issues in the UK? Absolutely. Many of the things that Jane has just been talking about resonate uh, very clearly because they're they're the same in the UK. We have over a third of children in England uh, living with overweight or obesity by the time that they leave primary school. Uh, and it affects different communities differently. So the rates of overweight and obesity are much higher amongst our, our lower socioeconomic groups than the, than the highest socioeconomic groups. Uh, and if you think about adults in the UK, around two thirds of us in the UK are living with either overweight or obesity. So it's it's there, it's normalised. You, know, you look at you know, 
how you see people and how you think about it is very different than it might have been 20, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and certainly uh, working with, as a cancer organisation, one of the things that we're particularly concerned about is that uh, I think, uh, be, living with overweight or obesity as an adult can increase your chances of uh, getting say, a whole host of diseases mm. later in life, including cancer. And if you're looking at children, you know, children living with obesity are five times more likely to be to, to have obesity as an adult. So this matters. They're carrying that weight through from their childhood and can affect them later in life. So, Malcolm, what are some of the measures that the UK is taking now to tackle the problem, given that you've sort of mapped out the similarities that, you know, Australia's the same with the, the two-thirds at overweight or obese. Um, what's the UK doing that we're perhaps not? I mean, we've had a number of different government strategies over the years. Some have uh, on, on tackling obesity, some have been implemented better than others um, and yeah, some have not at all. But what we have started to have in the last few years is yeah, some really world-leading policies that have been passed by, by, by the UK government, uh, either for the UK as a whole or, or, or affecting just the, the, the nation of England, starting off with uh, a sugary drinks tax, our soft drinks industry levy, uh, just celebrated uh, five years of that, uh, I say, last month. Um, but also... We- and has that been proven to work? Because there's lots of debate around whether or not a sugar tax is the way to go. I mean, there is no silver bullet, let's face facts, but some people will argue that a sugar tax was then just taxing those that can least afford it. So it's a really good starting point to go from. And I have to say, even we in the public health community were really impressed at the way that once the... Once the tax had been announced and it was happening and uh, I say the, the, the soft drink industry had got over their opposition and realised this was coming in, they then changed what was in their drinks. They reformulated, they took some of the sugar out or they took they completely scrapped some of the most sugary drinks and brought in the healthier ranges. And what you had between the two years from when it was announced in 2016 to when it came in in 2018 was almost half of the drinks, half of the sugary drinks that could have been taxed we're no longer on. No, we're no longer taxed. Well, Kirsten really and I good. were talking about sizes. When I was growing up, I'm old enough to remember the little half cans, you know, and that's what we were given as kids, oh. and they're harder and harder to access now. Yeah, they have skinny cans now. Well, not I've many. Seen. Yeah, <laughs> so, not many. I mean, I lo- I love a ginger beer, and I uh, came to this country, got got uh, one of the the leading brands uh, actually given to me on the plane, um, and took a, a sip of it, and it was like, oh, that's different than I'm used to, wow. because even the leading many of the leading brands of ginger beer in the UK have actually changed. You've got half as much sugar now as they had before, and uh, it, you know, still tastes great, but just. That you know, taking the sugar from our diets, and that's what's happened. Forty-six thousand tons less sugar uh, in uh, in our diets in the UK from 2015 to 2020, just because of the tax. The idea of ginger beer was the only thing that got me through my pregnancy and stopped me (laughs) vomiting. And even the smell of a ginger beer now cannot bring myself to it. Hillary's called through in Geelong. Hi, Hillary. What did you want to say? Oh, hi, Rochelle and others. I um, have spent over 40 years working as a medical scientist and accredited practicing dietitian in this field and in health promotion. And even now I look around and I am actually, I mean, I do know a lot of and understand a lot about people's behaviors, but the confusion or the, the lack of priority amongst people, friends of mine, anybody, family, they really do not prioritise it. And I think there's a lot of mixed messages that come in the community that give them a false sense of security and everyone else is doing it. The foods are there. Everyone eats them. You know, this is what we do. This is what we give kids in, in school, in kindergarten, the first foods for babies. And also, um, they, the, you know, shows like the recent one by a well-known um, celebrity comedian, on obesity they're very good but they don't seem to hit home and i think people have a false sense of security and they just do what everybody else does and really when children are taught not well they're not taught to prefer the tastes which are going to serve them well later in life as in their taste development from an early age 
it's a it, you fighting a losing battle. And I think even cooking shows can work against. Mm. You know, cook even on dare I say, you know, the Tuesday cooking show on the ABC. If it talks for half an hour about all these wonderful recipes that contain lots of fat and salt and sugar, and people just think that's normal. And there's, I think we might even have to get to the point where advertising has a warning, like with cigarettes. Uh, yeah, and, well, there's lots of talk about banning advertising. Hillary raises some good points there, but Jane, can we put this back to you in that? Is it that we just don't worry about it or do we feel like that we're doing the right thing? Because there aren't a lot of rules and regulations around labelling, around transparency. Kirsten and I were talking about off-air that we discovered that there's nearly 50 teaspoons of sugar in a Slurpee. Now, I feel like that needs to come with a warning. Now, I know people are going to say, oh, good on you, you're nanny state, you want to police everything. But I would like to know that there are 50 teaspoons of sugar in a Slurpee if I was choosing, because we all have the choice, if I was choosing to drink it or to give it to my child. Yeah, and I think it's really unfair to sort of allow the food industry and our environment to be saturated with these products which don't have clear labelling, this marketing which makes them very attractive, particularly for children like Slurpees, um, and then tell people to do better. I just don't think that's not working. It's not going to going to work. So we've looked at putting teaspoons on sugary drinks and people respond really well to that. Because uh, the purse serve thing, like I've Maybe it's just me. No, it's But everyone. I can't figure it out. <laughs> no one can. Don't worry about it. We need clear, <laughs> simple, easy yeah. to understand information. You know, we, we've done it with tobacco. We need to do all those, pull all those levers, but make it easy for people and don't promote the unhealthy over the healthy. Let's make canteens, let's make early childhood centres, let's promote the healthiest food possible and with foods for babies and toddlers, they should be regulated to have limits on how much sugar can be put in them. Claims should go off. It's very confusing for parents. They're all over the packaging and the promotion and the advertising. We just need to ensure that children have the best start in life. They're eating a range of foods. They're not having these very sweet foods, often sweetened with you know concentrated fruit pastes and concentrates. Um, and that then we're taking that through um, childhood and through adulthood where people live and work and play. They've taken sugary drinks out of hospitals, for example. The YMCA have taken unhealthy foods and shifted the balance of foods in their leisure centres. Um, the Victorian government has now got healthy food, healthy sustainable food procurement through the health department. So everything they spend money on um, mm. has to be healthy and sustainable. These are where we can make the shifts and we're creating creating a market for healthy food. I mean, innovation, let's go. So have you been shocked to learn that you're obese and is there a misconception around obesity? And is it simple to eat well and to find time to exercise? This is The Conversation Hour. On ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Rochelle Hunt here with you in Melbourne. Kirsten Dipro is joining you from ABC Warrnambool. In the studio, Jane Martin, who's the Executive Manager for the Food Health Alliance. And Malcolm Clark, joining us from the UK, is the Senior Prevention Policy Manager at Cancer Research. And today, Kirsten, we're talking obesity and how that 30% of us are obese. And if we continue on the trends that we have, that will increase. Yeah, and lots of text messages coming in um, about trying to understand what's what's normal. Um, you know, 18 spoons of sugar in medium iced coffee, uh, says Greg in Windsor. Uh, another text says you need to change the mindset of people. The majority forget what it's like to feel good. Um, that's an interesting comment. Um, you know, making sure you cook as much possible from scratch uh, is from Luke. It's a, a lot of people are talking about the need to be cooking yourself and knowing what's in the food that you're eating. Again, food labels um, is is raised as an issue. I don't know how you know I, it, this has been spoken about for so long, Rochelle. Though you know, I remember as a kid, it was all about the tick. You know, and now we've got these health star ratings. And my kids were were looking at um, a Kit Kat the other day, and, and one said to me. Mum, it's got half a star rating. <laughs> and, you know, how much you know if you can just work off those particular ratings as well. Scott's called from Williamstown. Hi, Scott. Hi, Rochelle. Good, uh, good discussion today, folks. What did you want to add? Uh, look, um, I was doing some research around the early childhood and the parenting um, area, and I came across some research from Professor Melissa Wake about um, 
early as about childhood obesity, which is often the um, the sort of precursor to adult obesity. And she came across the the strongest indicators about um, uh, minimising the childhood obesity was. Uh, parenting styles and she looked at mum's parenting styles and dad's parenting styles um, either autocratic permissive or democratic and the major indicator that she was quite shocked at, at seeing how strong it was was dad having a democratic parenting style which was a, a, a big guard against um, the onset of childhood obesity and it was very very interesting i think you hit on something in terms of education, Scott, you know, whether that research is right and whether or not we can say, well, I mean, there's always some, in the, our household, I always feel like the baddie, you know, I'm always the one that says no. And lots of people have been sending through texts saying our grandparents have got a lot to answer for. They give our kids far too much sugar. How much of this, Malcolm, comes down to education? And then we always say, well, it's about education, but how do we do that? Where do we start? Well, I think, First of all, I think it's just admitting most of us come in, you know, whether it's parenting, whether it's going to the shops to buy our food, with good intent. We do actually kind of know what a healthy diet looks like. But as has been said, we're bombarded by all these images of really attractive food and drink that is less healthy. It's much, often much more available to us, uh, can be priced very competitively. And it, it's just cost hard. Is a big one. It's, it's just hard. I mean, cost isn't the only thing, but I said it's only in the UK, we recognise that it is about, um, I say, taking the spotlight away from those less healthy foods, putting the spotlight onto more healthy foods. And you do have to do that through uh, restricting price promotions and location promotions of less healthy food and drink. That's certainly a start to give you the chance. Yeah, to I get call it running others. the gauntlet. Um, every time you, you go to the checkout and there's just yeah. the sea of chocolate bars and when you've got your kids with you. But like, even oh. the two for ones, like I, I crack it in the supermarket because it's cheaper to buy two packets of chips, say, than one packet of chips. Now, Ah, but let me just say the yeah. evidence in the UK is actually you spend more on these, uh, you know, up to 20% yes. more. And because just think about it, if you've got a two for one on a packet of biscuits, you buy both packets of biscuits. Very good of you if you can take put that second pack of biscuits in the cupboard and not bring them out during that first week. And so you're not having to go back to the supermarket the next week for more biscuits. It normally it's doesn't the, the, work I like that. I don't want two packets. That's the thing that gets me <laughs> but, so annoyed. But I don't want to be penalised at the same time, yes. Michelle. I'm going to be a bit con controversial. I'm by, the same. I feel if like I a can, No, but if I can put that extra packet away, why should I be penalised? Like if I can get a bargain from it and not eat it or, you know, and it's the same with drinks, right? You know, so the the sugar tax, again, just to to bring that up, um, you know, there will be some people who say, well, you know, cost of living is already so high. I enjoy my one sugary drink once a month or whatever it is. I know it's a sometimes food. Why do I have to pay more for it? I said... What's really good in the UK is actually you've got all of these drinks that are you know, now cheaper. Mm -hmm. They are, you know, or they're presented at the same price point, either because the companies you know, put, the, put all of their drinks sugary and, not, and less sugary at the same price point, or because they know that actually, let's say you go to, go to a drinks fountain at a, you know, uh, you know, a restaurant or an you know, entertainment place or the bar, um, and you know, you're having sugary, you're having a dr soft drink, Actually, you have to then go somewhere else to get the sugary drink that costs more than all of those other slightly less sugary drinks, but they're often the same. You know, they, the, the, the diet or the no sugar versions of the same, the same thing that you've been drinking. So you're not doing yourself out of a drink, but actually it's just that extra thought process of if I really want this drink then I'm going to mm. have to go this extra little bit to do it. And it's all those little steps, whether it's, you know, in the supermarket, you know, looking at our wallets or our purses or anything else that just helps to change things. Because every, you know, each of those little steps, a slight possible reduction in the amount of calories and sugar that we're eating. So those little bits of fewer excess calories that can really matter to help us maintain a healthy weight. This text, lots of people saying it's easy, just don't eat carbs, for example. And some of the misconceptions around what a healthy diet is, we've got a lot of information that bombards us now about how 
how to keep our weight under control and maybe, you know, we can't be- believe half of the stuff that's on social media now. So how do we know what's real and what's right, Jane? Yeah, I think that's increasingly a challenge, particularly through social media. And I think we really need to see leadership here by our government. We do have a national obesity strategy that does recommend that we have campaigns. We've seen really great campaigns for 10 years in Western Australia with something called Live Lighter, um, very well researched and and developed and, and really does make a difference. And we did run it here in Victoria around sugary drinks and people understood that it wasn't just soft drinks, that it was sports drinks, energy drinks, fruit juice drinks were all drinks with sugar in them. So we're reviewing the dietary guidelines, but we do need to have more information and support out there for people. So there's a trusted source. I think that's critical mm-hmm. and I think that's missing. I think what's really interesting about this conversation is that we're really kind of saying, are we conceiving this as a societal problem and therefore we need to be making those small changes like Malcolm was suggesting so that on a bigger level we can make these overall changes? Or are we talking about individual choices and the right to have, you know, our own choice to be able to access different foods um, how we want and at reasonable prices and not be taxed or or penalised for it. And we'll be talking to Jeff Parker from the Australian Beverages Council really shortly um, because I think he might have a slightly different viewpoint. But Jane, I just wanted to ask you, if we're talking about it on a societal level, which is I think how you're looking at it, what are the impacts of rising obesity on our health system here in Victoria? Yeah, look, I think there's a um, there's a number, as um, Malcolm's already spoken about, um, risks of cancer, heart disease, type 2 diabetes. But I think the concerning thing is that living with these many of these diseases, you are living with a disability. And we've got nearly half of 18 to 24-year-olds entering adulthood above a healthy weight. So you're at risk for a longer period of your life. Um, and it has impacts. It has impacts on your ability to be able to walk, for example. It's, it's quite, um, it can be quite um, expensive as well. And the whole family um, has to work with that person um, to ensure that they're getting the services that they need and the support, the support that they need. And there's really not enough support to help people mm. to change either. We've got a quit line. We don't have support services for people above a healthy weight in, to the same degree. So we really need, we need to stop blaming the individual when we're not making it easy for the individual. These little nudges, as Malcolm was speaking so about, ingrained. are important. It's really so important. You know, if you do well in local junior football, you're given a voucher to a fast food chain. <laughs> There's a text here from Bill in Canberra, and it says everything from wheat bix to Nutri-Grain, they advertise themselves alongside images of kids and adults playing sport and eating energy. These two are both ridiculously high in sugar, so we should be banning things like Ironman competition. But how we associate and the role of advertising. And again, it comes down to how big is this problem? What information have we been fed now for generations? And how do we start to undo that? You know, it has to be a combination from both the government, state and federally, as well as the changes that we make in our own lives. This is the Conversation Hour on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. Michelle Hunt and Kirsten Diprose with you. We're talking about obesity and the fact that 30% of us are classified as obese. How do we change that? There's text flying through, Kirsten. Everything from my daughter, who's 12 years old, is sitting in the car at the moment and she's saying, well, we have McDonald's out the front of the Royal Children's Hospital. Another saying, Michelle, great discussion regarding obesity. Can you ask your guests about some of the risks for cancer as well? That's from my experiences, Anna and St Kilda. We'll get to those and we'll get to some of those questions in just a moment. Yeah, look, Jeff Parker is with us. He's the CEO of the Australian Beverages Council. Welcome to the program, Jeff. Yeah, good morning, ladies. So we just heard from uh, Malcolm Clark, who mentioned he's he's in the UK, uh, that the drinks here in Australia are much more sugary than the UK. Do we have too much sugar in our drinks here in Australia? 
I think in comparison to the UK, what has been happening in this market for over two decades, which is different to the UK, is that there has been a lot of reformulation that has been happening. Uh, we looked at some data that came out of Kantar, which is a um, market analyst firm uh, out of the UK, and we looked at uh, 2018 data, which was the year that their soft drink industry levy was introduced, and we were sitting um, slightly ahead of the UK when it comes to percentage sales of uh, low and no sugar drinks compared to regular sugar drinks. So um, uh, sugar is continuing to come out uh, of drinks here in this particular market. Uh, we also know that there's a, a 22 year sales trend analysis of, of sales here in uh, Australia. And uh, over that 22 year period, uh, the sugar contribution uh, from drinks has been decreasing and declining over that period to the tune of about 32 teaspoons less per person per year over that 22 year period. So um, from a public health perspective, uh, we are certainly uh, on uh, comparison with the UK, even after their tax uh, has come into force. And a lot of those graphs, you know, the graphs around the sugar sweetened beverage sales decreasing, the sales of low and no sugar drinks increasing, water consumption increasing, water continues to be the drink of choice uh, for kids and adults here in Australia, uh, that uh, certainly heading in the right direction from, uh, from mm. a public health perspective. In terms of how we re-educate ourselves, the labelling around what we drink and how we see it, I know growing up that orange juice was considered healthy in our household. Most of us were given it every morning. We know now that that's probably not wise and we've only just recently seen the ratings of most fruit juices change, go from five stars down to anywhere between two to four stars and that there can be something as strong as you know, 11% sugar in, in some of those drinks. We also know that Slurpees, for example, might have 50 teaspoons of sugar in an average Slurpee. Do we need better information so that we can make choices on these particular beverages, do you believe, Jeff? Do, I, mean, I mean, I reckon Slurpees should come with a warning, to be honest. So um, listening into some of the early conversation you were having um, uh, as, as part of the panel presentation there, I think was interesting. And that was around how do we tackle this really complex and costly issue of obesity? Um, I think we do need to take it from a society wide perspective. I think we need to look at it from a food systems perspective. I think education is incredibly important. I think um, some of the initiatives that, you know, government, public health groups and industry has supported uh, over more recent years, like Health Star Rating, um, continue to be part of the solution. Um, but um, certainly, you know, um, education and, 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 and that Health Star is, you know, relatively easy for people to sort of understand, hopefully, that, you know, more stars, the better. I think, you know, when it comes to fruit juice and certainly single, single strength juice, um, I think, the, yes, of course, it's got sugar in it that comes from the originating piece of fruit but there's also a lot of really good things in juice and 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 certainly some of the more recent research coming out around people who consume juice is supporting um a, certainly a healthy contribution to that person's diet so a juice consumer as an example gets less of their kilojoules or calories from discretionary food and drinks they have a higher fiber diet they have a higher quality diet overall so yes it's got sugar in it but i guess this gets back to this current sort of almost a demonization uh we're having at uh, on sugar at the moment um we're probably uh, all all of a generation uh as part of this discussion we 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 know 20 or 30 years ago that we're all told to avoid fat uh, of course, some you know um, uh, some manufacturers were able to take fat out and and put sugar in. Sort of 20 or 30 years later, we're now having this very you know single focused um, you know um, pointed pointed discussion mm. around sugar. For, oh, absolutely, for, I mean, but at the same time, reason. I think it's it takes more than just us as consumers to make those decisions. We it has to come from both sides and I just wonder, you know, whether it be the the beverage council. You I mean you can make changes without consumers demanding it surely because you know that that is a, the better thing to do yeah and um in 2018 actually there was a there was an article in the in the journal the lancet and it talked about um time for a new 
obesity narrative and just um, listening to uh, some of the very early conversations as part of this program around sort of thinking about obesity in a different way. And I think certainly some of those, uh, so, some of that uh, journal article talked about, you know, that the, you know, the factors or the causes of obesity is everything from molecular genetics all the way through to market forces. And I think that that, it, that certainly resonated with me, I think it um, resonated with you know with uh, a lot of different stakeholders, and I think so. Just getting back to your question, I think the beverage industry here in this market has been responding to shifting consumer demands. There's far less sugar sweetened beverages being consumed now than what there were 20 years ago. And in 2018, you know, we we launched our sugar reduction pledge, which was a further commitment to you know offer people more choices. So as you know, well, what the about a sugar tax though, Jeff? Um, a sugar tax has been you know floated many times and um, the, the, the Beverages Council has continually opposed it. Yeah, so interestingly, the, the topic of a sugar tax first um, came up in Australia in 2006, so it has been discussed for a very, very long time. Um, I guess where governments are not supported, that, you know, governments in Australia, are, uh, uh, subsequent governments in Australia have not been supportive of a sugar tax, is that they look to the, you know, the global evidence and, and, and despite certainly, you know, taxes like in the UK, driving reformulation, which is a good thing, which has been happening in this market for over two decades, um, there's no evidence that uh, these types of taxes have any discernible positive impact on public health. So Brits are still getting, uh, unfortunately, Brits are not getting any thinner. Um, people in Mexico where a tax has been in place since 2016 are certainly not getting any thinner. Um, and, and in this market, uh, all of that reformulation, all of that portfolio renovation, the sugar reduction pledge, sugar from drinks coming down over a 22-year period has been happening without the need um, to slap a tax on the weekly shop. The other area I wanted to ask you about is advertising. Now, I understand that um, there are strict rules that um, the industry abides by in terms of um, advertising to children under 15. But advertising in general, I know the Cancer Council has put out, um, you know, its figure on how much the uh, industry um, pays. I think it's um, $129.5 million spent on advertising. And look, sugary drink companies have a lot of money and, you know, that's that's how it works. Um, the Cancer Council were looking at that in terms of comparing it with, you know, the public health advertising spend, which is far, far less. What are your views on, on advertising does more need to be happening in, in terms of making sure advertising, you know, lets people know about the sugar content or even just there not being so much of it? Yeah, so I think it's, um, you know, again, sugar from drinks in Australia is coming down and has been coming down for, you know, for two decades. Um, absolutely. We take a, you know, we take a zero, zero tolerance approach to sort of any advertising that uh, of certain products that do get to people who are under the age uh, of 15. Um, and so I think that there are certainly more that can be done uh, in that space. Um, and, and I'd be interested in the, you know, the Cancer Council's research of exactly how much of that uh, spend was directed towards low and no sugar varieties. Certainly a lot of our larger members are telling us that, um, you know, all of their marketing and advertising spend these days is geared towards low and no sugar varieties. And that's, you know, being driven by reformulation, innovation, new product development, trying to get people um, to, mm. um, you know, drink a healthier choice. Just finally, Jeff, and I know as the CEO of the Australian Beverages Council, this is your work. This is, is what you do. But you would have to admit that big companies and big organisations like yourself can do more. You know, you really can. I mean, we can do everything in our little canteens and our whatevers and our small leisure centres. We can do what we can. But at the same time, we need the big players to make significant changes. Do you think that there is still significant change that needs to happen from organisations like yours? I think the beverage industry has stepped up. Um, I think today, when we're looking at sort of um, since our sugar reduction pledge came into force, uh, where you know it's almost been you know I think we're nearing close to 20% sugar reduction uh, across the portfolios of the of the very large companies which have signed up to the sugar reduction pledge. We support the health star rating. You know we support you know the review of the Australian dietary guidelines. So I think from a from a from a beverage industry perspective, mm. I think you know we are we are very keen 
to own a part of the solution in a really complex, convoluted space. And we encourage other parts of the shopping trolley to launch their own pledge or their own commitment to reduce sugar or fat or salt. And I think we absolutely need to be sort well, of... You guys have got work- to get together, right, and, and work this out because it has an impact on people's health. I want to know, would, would a sugar tax actually hurt anyone in the industry? Like, you know, I don't think any of us are worried about those big brands that make a, a lot of profit. But, you know, in, in an Australian or Victorian context, would a sugar tax hurt any kind of local or smaller industries? Um, I think, it, you know, it obviously depends on sort of the portfolio and, and particularly some of those smaller manufacturers um, simply just don't have sort of that breadth of portfolio to be able to sort of uh, navigate any sort of price increases. Of course, there is sort of a quasi, you know, tax already in place with, with the GST compared to sort of, you know, water as an example. Um, but again, you know, I guess subsequent governments have looked to the global evidence base. They know the United Nations has uh, at the very highest level have repeatedly considered and rejected sugar sweetened beverage taxes and they're looking to that global evidence base and seeing that there's no discernible impact positive impact on public health the brits aren't getting any thinner yeah, people in mexico aren't getting thinner people yeah. in any market where there's yeah. a tax uh, unfortunately well, aren't getting any thinner we appreciate you coming on jeff thanks for your time jeff parker Great. is the ceo of the australian beverage council Kirsten Dipperose, when I was growing up, if you had said to me, you know, when you're older, Rochelle, you're going to have to pay $4.50 for a bottle of water, I would have laughed and said, you're crazy. <laughs> water's everywhere. And the amount of people that are saying bottled water's expensive. It should be here. It should be there. It should be made available to us. Jeff touched on advertising when you asked him that question. One thing that we haven't sort of gotten into today is there's the standard advertising. And do you put a ban on advertising during certain hours in television uh, around school? at sporting events but then you've got kid fluences and the amount of money that young kids are making through promoting all sorts of things in particular junk food as well i mean that horse is bolted when it comes to trying to regulate and and mandate any form of influencer on social media yeah, I, I thought what Jeff Jeff was really making the point about how there are a lot of no sugar options around or low sugar options, um, and I, I'd like to know about you know some of the studies. And, and Malcolm, you're looking into the the sugar tax now, aren't you? And its effect in the UK. Is there any research that that yet says that yes, it is effective? Uh, Jeff was sort of putting forward that there is no evidence that it is effective. So. What's been really good in in the UK is that we've actually had independent evaluation of the soft drinks industry levy, the sugary drinks tax from from academics, and that that evaluation is continuing. But uh, what we see initially and is understanding the positive impacts, both in terms of, I say, the amount of sugar taken out of the drinks, the amount of sugar taken out of the diets, and the positive impact that has on people's health. Now, the problem is that sugary drinks are only one part of our diet they have reduced from the the the, the biggest source of uh, sugar and free sugars in the uk children's diets to, to to less than that we've got many other products many other big brands spending a large amount of money put, you know mm. making their products very attractive uh, promoting them and that's where the problem is so i think what jeff has hit the nail on the head on really they're absolutely right voluntary yeah, you know, these voluntary initiatives that he's talking about, you know, he's pioneering, thinking that they're a really good idea from other parts of the industry. We've had that in the last five years, eight years, 10 years in the UK, across all of the other parts of our food industry has not worked, has not, you know, they have not seen nearly as much impact as the sugary drinks tax. So what we know is it does need those government levers, those, uh, I say, whether it is about advertising restrictions, whether it is about uh, other ways to incentivise industry uh, to make healthier food and drink uh, more affordable and more available. We need those in order to have that population change that we all really want to see. And there's always a new product coming out and it's always being marketed in a way that's kind of trying to dupe us to a certain degree. I mean, I've been talking about Slurpees. That just shows my age, right? But in terms <laughs> of what a lot of people are worried about, and this text is saying exactly that, some fantastic information this morning. Thank you so much. I work 
in a grade three in a grade three sector at a primary school. But the amount of talk and excitement over the new prime drinks mm. is frightening. Kids tell us that their parents spend the weekend searching for them so they can bring them to school to show their friends. Now, prime drinks, I don't know a lot about, but I know that there's a lot of concern around them. I also know a lot of kids absolutely love them. And oh, then I've never p- even heard of it. I don't even know what you're talking about. And there's confusion around whether or not they're good for you and what they actually do. There's always going to be another high-performance drink, Cora. It started out with your Gatorades and then your Red Bulls and all that sort of stuff, and now it's prime drinks. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, every now and again you get a product like this which is fueled by influencers and just, you know, it goes gangbusters. Um, I think it's every marketer's dream, but this is a, that's a, it's a product which is very high in caffeine and we have restrictions on caffeine in products for children. Uh, so it's bypassing a lot of those and it's just completely taken hold. But this is kind of a one-hit wonder. What we really need to worry about is those products that are, you know, readily available, heavily promoted, you know, such as through the AFL and those kinds of things associated with sport. Children do not need, you know, things like sports drinks. They're just not elite athletes. So we need to kind of break that nexus between sport promoting, you know, junk food through rewards with kids and then these associations with these with these drinks. These are the powerful influences that are there every day. Um, and that's why, you know, as I said, the Victorian government's taking sugary drinks out of hospitals, for example, or putting them out of sight. And that's how we start to shift and change and, and, and get a response from companies that Jeff Parker represents to, um, you know, we're creating the demand for lower, no sugar um, products. And the bulk of the advertising from the studies that the Cancer Council has done is for um, high sugar drinks. That's what's being advertised mostly um, out there in the, in the environment. And that's what um, people are responding to, particularly kids. Let's uh, take some talk back. And Richard's in Caulfield. Hi, Richard. Uh, hi, guys. How are you? Good, thank you. Uh, I just, if Jeff, who I think was from the Beverage Council, can I just just make an observation? I think he stated that the reduction per head of per, per, by person over the course of a year is 36 teaspoons of sugar, which I think equates to about two cans of Coca-Cola. And... So therefore, on a year's basis, my rough estimate is that that's less than 2% difference in reasonable or high level consumption. That's below impact. The second is that you mentioned Mexico, where we know multinationals such as Coca-Cola and Pepsi Corporation actually take sponsorship of small villages, towns, and even secondary cities, where they build infrastructure around schools, a build infrastructure around sporting facilities and then own the supply chain all the way to enabling sales. Yeah. To and Richard, I mean, how much do we do sort of pseudo similar things here? When you look at new housing estates and when they're built, sometimes the first things that go in before a footy ground, before a school, there will be multiple fast food chains in our housing estates. Yeah, uh, there, there won't be a fresh food supermarket there. Yes, and I and I think I think what it points to is that it's great to say I am the Council of Australia, but I find that a little bit without without sense sense of true societal impact. Because aren't we? These are organisations that will operate to their best possible advantage, depending mm. upon regulatory environment. Yeah, good on you, Richard. Thank you. It's uh, an interesting point Richard makes and, and that discussion you're talking about having, um, you know, setting up communities and setting them up to, to win when it comes to healthy food choices. And Di Nixon is with us. She's the coordinator of leisure facilities at Hylac, which is the Hamilton Indoor Leisure and Aquatic Centre, which I have to say is where I take my kids swimming and basketball. And I noticed a drastic change in what was off, on offer there. Um, Di, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks for having me. So, Di, tell us what's happened at Hylac because I noticed a whole lot of other food available for my kids and that my kids were actually going for those foods. Yeah, yeah. So, um, a little while ago, um, sort of coming out of COVID, um, during COVID, we kind of got stuck in a bit of a a rut where um, all that we were serving um, was sort of potato chips and potato cakes. Um, And 
yeah, when I, I came into this position um, around six months ago and um, just started to look to go, well, we have this, this cafe and we have this enormous um, exposure to children and families um, and, you know, part of council's role is actually to shape a, a healthy community and lead a healthy community. So, um, yeah, part of that was uh, to partner with uh, Vic Kids Eat Well and um, we've been able to make some tankers in the cafe. Um, I so love that. And it shows, it options. makes it easier mm. for us. And it's very similar. There's a, an incredible story in Rainbow, I think it is, where people have taken over a new service station and said, I'm not going to just serve pies and pasties for meals. And have gone about their, I think, of Sri Lankan heritage and served the most incredible array of curries. And now people love that those options are there. And Di, it's about ease for family and so often junk food falls into the ease for families and I know if my leisure centre where I take my daughter for basketball and swimming, sometimes they're late games and if I think, gosh, we need some dinner afterwards the only option I have there is hot chips. You know, if I was at your leisure centre, I could potentially sit down after swimming and have a healthy meal. Yeah, yeah, so absolutely. So one of the things we um, we were um, looking to really include the community, um, obviously being a, a council facility, we're community-based, so um, we wanted to include them in some of the choices that we've actually been able to offer. Um, so we just did that by running a simple survey and from that, you know, we've been able to bring things in like... Um, with winter coming in, we've started offering soups. Um, we've got homemade sausage rolls, and we're also offering some family packs as well. Oh, yeah. um, you got the, me at a homemade families. sausage roll. <laughs> yeah, but, and and it is for that reason, you know. To, Obviously, basketball families. Some families can find themselves at the at the courts from you know four pm right through till eight yes, or nine o'clock. So yep, that's just me. Just being, being able to grab something on <laughs> and the a way family out. pack. What a great idea! And it's yeah. not. Yeah. Uh, what's it doing for sales though? Because it's all very well to have this on offer, but are families and kids actually? going that that stuff because you still have the regular um you know ice creams and ice blocks on offer are kids actually eating the fruit cups yeah yeah so um absolutely they are the fruit cups that we offer are one of our biggest sellers now um will they ever outsell hot chips i don't know um but there's definitely a trend um, towards more of that healthier and fresher option. It's just having the option there is what I yeah, find so right. exciting. Yeah, that's right. I was just going to say, sorry, something that we, we work on is is really trying to focus on progress rather than perfection. So, yeah. you know, it's um, it's a, just offering options and, um, yeah, not having to have every, every item of the menu to be perfectly nutritious, but to provide the options for families and you make it easy for families too that you don't have to if you're there from 4 30 to 8 30 that you do have a family pack that's healthy that you can take home di congratulations i'm, I'm really impressed i wish my local leisure center would do the same well done <laughs> coordinator at the leisure uh, faculties at which is highlight which is the hamilton indoor leisure center and aquatic center a huge thank you uh, to jane martin the executive manager for food health alliance and also here from the uk malcolm Clark, Senior Prevention Policy Manager at Cancer Research. I feel like we kind of, as always, <laughs> just scratched the surface. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Kirsten, we knew this would go around in circles, but it's important to keep having the conversation. You can't say, oh, yeah, here we go again. Let's talk about how to lead a healthy life. We have to keep talking about it, don't we? Oh, there are so many angles to that, but I think that's why having this conversation and that talk about an obesity is sort of a national strategy to it because there is no one-size-fits-all approach to it. There's lots of little things, and I think the idea of small changes is particularly important. Like just at Highlack, you know, they're not trying to... They're not offering quinoa and broccoli. They're just offering homemade pizzas and pasta and soups, you know, but it's so much better than offering... than having, you know, hot, hot chips, chips and potato cakes. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. Take care and we'll speak to you soon.